The church calendar today officially begins the season of Advent. Um, and uh, starting next Sunday, we'll give some time, carve out some time during service to especially focus on Advent as we go through readings and prayer. But I don't know about you, but uh, Advent for this uh, year is going to have a particularly more meaningful significance. Amen? Anybody else? This, this sense in which we need Jesus. This sense in which we, we await the return of Jesus, our King, to what we believe to restore and renew all things. Like that longing. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling it more acutely this year than others. So look forward to that. Um, this is also a season in which um, it could be very difficult for people. Very, very difficult. So I'd like to ask two things real quick before we jump in. And that is, church family, can we be mindful when we gather, not just on Sundays, but others. Can we be mindful this year to be extra attentive to others around us? Be extra attentive that in this season in which we are bombarded to be self-absorbed, like, look up, look out. Notice who's hurting. Notice who seems lonely. Notice who seems like they're struggling. Like, be extra attentive about looking out, you know? So when you come on Sundays, and instead of just zipping to your pew, and you're seeing all y'all have your favorite seats and pews, um, before you do that, just look out, look around, and, and notice, and see if there are folks who are struggling and hurting, okay? And if you feel led, to go up to them and say, hey, you doing okay? Hey, I don't know you. My name is so-and-so. Welcome to our church. Can I pray for you? Just be extra attentive. And then secondly, um, for those of us that are hurting, that are struggling, that are having a particularly difficult time this year, um, will you reach out? Will you reach out? Reach out. And if that person that you reach out can't help, we in our church, hopefully, we could then direct you to other folks who might be able to. But please reach out. Reach out. Will you do that? We can't sometimes read your mind. I'm sorry, did I just say sometimes we can't read your minds? <laughs> we can't read your minds all the time. Sometimes we can't tell what exactly it is that you might be going through. So reach out. Amen? So we need to do both. Reach out. And to the best of our ability, we want to be that community that could help and come around you. And secondly, may we be that church community that will be attentive and notice and be sensitive during this year to who might be hurting, struggling, suffering, in need. Okay? And for introverts like myself, this is particularly difficult. Yes, I am an introvert, an extreme introvert, actually. So it's particularly difficult personality-wise just to initiate. But man, I'm challenging myself this year to do that more. Um, confession this morning. Uh, eh, maybe not confession, just something about me. You ought to know. I don't struggle with gratitude. Eh, I, 
I do, but gratitude isn't that hard for me. Here's what I mean. I, as cynical, as pessimistic, as a, as a negative person I can be, being grateful takes a little bit of effort, but I can be grateful. Like, it doesn't take much for me to come out of my self-absorption when I think about my kids. That's all it takes. And then I'll be sitting like in a coffee shop and I'll start tearing up for no reason, right? Because there's a sense in which I go, I don't deserve that, God. I thank you. Like, like, so gratitude for me, it takes a little bit of effort. You know what I struggle with? I struggle with contentment. <laughs> We're going to have church this morning. All right. Because I was thinking maybe I'm going to say that and people are going to be like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I struggle with contentment. If gratitude is a, is a measure of our perspective on things we have, Contentment is a measure of our perspective on things we don't have. And I'm telling you, I struggle deeply with contentment, which is, there there is nothing more that I want, no matter how much or how little I have. And let me be just very clear up front, so we're on the same page. When I say contentment, I'm not talking about really clear some, some, you know, passive, kind of lackadaisical, kind of an uncaring posture and attitude, frankly, towards things in our world that we should be more outraged about. See, there is a difference between what I want to talk about today and what I'll call a sense of holy discontentment at sin in our lives, holy discontentment at the way the world is, Injustice and oppression. There ought to be the sense of holy discontentment towards things about us that we need to change and things about the world that needs to change. I'm not talking about that sense of holy. I'm talking about what the Bible refers to as this self-absorbed, self-centered need, desire for more, for better, for shinier, for newer that often results in a sense of entitlement, ingratitude, some of us cynicism, arrogance, pessimism. Matter of fact, I will argue that it is because of our inability to be content, godly contentment, that it keeps us from a holy sense of discontentment. It's because, plainly speaking, we're so absorbed with what I don't have that it's difficult, frankly, for us to care about what other people don't have. There is a direct correlation between our sense of contentment, I guarantee you, and your ability to live sacrificial lives for others. So this is pretty important. And of course, there is this. We live in a country where our entire economic system is predicated upon creating discontentment in you and me. We're in the season in which our economic system is entirely built on creating a desire for something you need that you didn't know you needed until you saw it, and then you said, I need one of those. There's a reason why you walk into Target for like one thing, and you walk out with like 10. You go, I didn't think I needed one of those until I saw it. I'm like, oh, I need one of those. And it's so subconscious. It just... It just creeps in. It just creeps in. So we buy into this futile lie that says that the reason why I'm not content is because of my circumstances. 
If my circumstances were different, if I had that, if I had this, if this was different, if that was different, then I, and we know that's a lie. We know that's futile because at the end of the day, you and I both know it's not our circumstances, but it's our perspective about our circumstances. Stop telling yourself that you're not content because of your circumstances. Stop believing the lie that if your circumstances are different, you'd be more content. Stop believing that lie. It's our perspective about our... That's the reason why Paul, when you read his letters, never ever prays that people's circumstances would change. Never. You know what he prays for? He prays that your perspective about your circumstances would be different. Contentment. It's not found in having everything. But it's finding satisfaction in everything that we have. So we're going to look at Paul. We're kind of in this short two-part series in the letter that he writes to a young pastor named Timothy. And we're going to read about Paul and learn this simple principle that takes, I think, a lifetime to embrace. And that is this, beneath every sin... Please listen up. Beneath every sin, beneath every sin is a failure to believe that everything I need, I already possess in Christ. Beneath every discontent, long, every sin is a failure to believe that everything I need, I already possess in Christ. We're going to read about a man whose contentment was grounded not in how much he had, but in the person who had him. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And we're going to look at actually two passages as we talk about the secret to contentment. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is... By the way, uh, is anybody here just totally content like anybody here just like it's all good uh verse six the word gain when he says to them is great gain literally it means mega wealth the word gain means mega wealth and the word contentment is a greek word autarkeia from the word archaea which means to be full to be satiated do you know what it's like to like eat a really good meal and you're just content. You're just, mm, you know, probably not like me. You don't, you don't eat until actually you feel uncomfortable because you ate so much. And you hate yourself like two hours later. But it's when you eat and you're like enough self-control. You're like, mm, yeah, it's good. You want another bite? No, 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 no. Another plate? No, no, no. I'm good. But what Paul's talking about here is not physical satiation. He's talking about a soul satiation. He's talking about our ability to sing. It is well. Sing it with me. It is well with my soul, with my soul. It's being able to sing that and go, mm, yeah. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, I saw 
regardless of circumstances, regardless, I'm utterly at rest, utterly at peace. And he's saying, that's real wealth. You can't buy that. There's another place in which Paul actually talked about contentment. And he gets to the reason why you and I are sitting here going, boy, that sounds like a great concept. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? In Philippians chapter 4, the other big place where he talks about contentment, he actually gets to the underneath reasons why it's so hard. So Philippians is a book, just a few books to your left in your Bible. Or the next slide on the screen, okay? Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul talks about commitment. And look what he says. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be con- content. Say the following three words. Whatever the circumstances. Now here's the crazy thing, right? Some of you know this. The history behind when he writes this letter in Philippians is this. The dude is under house arrest, possibly facing execution and torture. He's sitting in their house arrest, possibly waiting execution and torture. He's, in other words, in circumstances in, in which you and I would know nothing of contentment, let alone peace and rest. And yet he says this. The truth is... You and I can't even face our bills without this kind of poise. You can't face dateless nights. You can't face our bosses. We can't face those things with this level of poise. And yet, facing execution, torture, Paul says, I'm at rest. I have peace. I'm content. It's all God. How? Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. There's a lot there. There's a lot. Let's, Let's unpack this. And Paul uses the word secret. He's using a very insightful word. When he says, I've learned the secret. He doesn't just go, I've learned content. He says, I've learned the secret. He's getting to this sense in which it's something that eludes us. We all want it, but it eludes us. It's, it's hard to get. It's hard to grasp. Why is that? Are we just greedy? Some of us. Are we just materialistic? Some of us. But you got to go deeper. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Why, why is contentment just so stinking hard? The next insight, I'm hugely indebted, of course, to the man I think who, who most profoundly kind of talked about this in his books and his writings is C.S. Lewis, right? He says this is the reason why it's so hard. Every single one of us sitting here this morning, here's what we have in common. I don't even need to know you. I know we have some visitors. We all have a deep, deep, deep desire for meaning, for significance, for love, for affirmation, for approval. We all do. All of us. Deep, deep, powerful desire for those things. And the thing is, so you fall in love and you go, ah, finally. Uh, you finally reach the pinnacle of your career and you go, ah, oh, finally the job that I wanted. Or you long to be a mom, right? And you have your first child like, finally. And then this dynamic happens. See if you can relate with me. You realize that the thing that arouses intense desire for meaning, for love, for significant approval, 
when you finally get near it, you realize what? That it doesn't satisfy. That it doesn't quite satisfy. Take steps. You ever notice that? Now, here's the thing. This is, this is why it's so odd. You and I just assume, man, if it aroused that desire, it ought to be able to satisfy that desire, right? So, so we just assume if it aroused the desire, it ought to, but when we get near it, you go, but it doesn't. Please listen carefully. This is the reason why. This is the reason why successful careers, marriage, money, relationships, whatever those things are, are incredibly dangerous because they will arouse a desire for something, for love, meaning, approval, without actually being able to completely satisfy. If you don't realize this, you'll never have a happy marriage. You'll never have a happy career. You'll never get that thing that you think you're longing for. So what the heck is going on? What is going on? What is going on? What are these things that arouse these incredible desires only to get near and say, it doesn't deliver? What is that? Is something wrong with this? And that's where C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, of course, says, there's nothing wrong with you. Here's what's going on. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. And then he says, and if you don't even know C.S. Lewis, you've heard this quote a thousand times. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for what? Another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. He's basically saying, you want something more than what this earth can provide because you were made for what? Another world. You want something out of life that's greater than life. What is that? Colossians 1.16. You were created by God. And what? For God. Underneath your desire for love is what? Desire for God's love. Underneath your desire for that insane need for affirmation that we all have is a desire for what? God's affirmation. Underneath that insane desire for approval is what? Ultimately, a desire for what? God's approval. You and I all know just even superficially, you know, you and I all know, we watch in the news, people who reach, you know, the pinnacle of their careers, and they do the whole, yeah, and then I, my life blew up and, because it's totally, utterly empty. See, you and I, let's be honest, we judge people who go, well, they try to find significance and identity and sing all these things, and of course it's empty. That's stupid. We all judge people. But why do we do the same thing? Why do we struggle with this thing when we intuitively kind of know that's not, no, that's not. Like all of us, even when I said that, maybe even if you're not a Christian, when I said we want God's love, we all go, yeah, that's true. But yet we're not content. What is that? 
Why do we still go, if I was married, and then you get married, you're not happy, and you go, oh, if I marry the right person, get the career, I'm not happy. It's not the right. Why do we do that? Why do we live for years with this delusion, this myth, that these earthly things will do it? Paul actually talked about it. Did you catch it? I bet you didn't. He talked about why we struggle with this in verse 12. This is just so powerful. Look at verse 12 again. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Therefore, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying it's either having nothing or having plenty that exposes the myth and reveals the truth that we're building our life on something that will never come through for us. But see, most of us never, ever get to the place of having nothing or having everything. So we live for a long time with this immature delusion that if I just... Do you know the kind of people for whom God is the most real? There are people who literally lost everything and hit rock bottom. Can I get an amen from somebody? Came to realize that's not it. Or people who reach the climax, they get everything they want, only to realize that's utterly empty. It's those of us who taste a little bit of success, but not total, and a little bit of disappointment, but not utter, that will live for a long time with this illusion. I'm not content because of these earthly things. Ask people who have nothing and realize who have everything. They will tell you those things are not big enough for my soul. I have underestimated the magnitude of my discontentment. I have totally underestimated the magnitude of my soul hunger. I'm talking to you, new community. I'm talking to like 99% of us that will neither experience utter and total despair, nothingness, or we will win the lottery. We'll live in the middle and live for a long time with this illusion. I'm not content because fill in the blank. So what do we do? Well, we'll get to that a little bit later, okay? But let's get back to 1 Timothy. Now we're kind of on the same page about the fact that we're all discontent. Let's, let's get back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what he says. For we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. Who is Paul quoting? Sunday school class? He's talking who? He's talking Job. Do you remember Job. Do you remember? He's quoting Job. Job, the Bible says, was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. In other words, Job is somebody who had, what? Plenty. Then do you remember what happened? 
literally overnight, he loses everything. His entire family is killed and he loses his entire wealth. In other words, he knows acutely what it's like to have nothing. So here's a guy who knows what it's like to have everything. And then the other day, he knows what it's like the, other, the next day to have nothing. And in the midst of this incredible suffering, there is this poise. There is this calmness. There is this thing about Job. And he says the following words, CC. Job chapter 1, verse 21. I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave, and the Lord, the Lord gave what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of. You could almost hear Job saying, What? I know what it's like to have plenty, I know what it's like to have. And I've learned the secret of being content. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then verses 8 to 10, we'll come back to that. In verses 8 to 10, Paul connects contentment to the issue of money and resources. It's almost like he says... How we use money and our wealth and resources is one of the clearest indicators of contentment. By the way, on a surface level, would you agree with that? I know some of y'all are like, oh, he's going to talk about money again. I am. (laughs) Would you agree with that contentment is very much an indicator of what we do? Yes or no? Okay, for those of you that are not still convinced. Because Paul essentially says this. Here's what happens when our lives are characterized by contentment. And here's what happens when our lives are characterized by this innate sense of discontentment. Verse 8. If we have food and clothing, he says, we will be content with that. To which we go, maybe in the year 30 AD, but not in 2016. Does it sound crazy to you that Paul says, for food and clothing, we'll be content with that? Not if you understand the power of contentment. See, real quick, I need to do this. Some people uh, erroneously think that this is saying all Christians need to embrace voluntary poverty. That's not biblical. Okay, let's just stop it with that, okay? Are there some folks who are called by God to sell everything they have, to live among support? Yes. But to say that all Christians are called to sell everything and voluntarily, that's not even biblical. Even in this letter, look what Paul says a little bit down the line, verse 18. He says, command them, that's the rich, we talked about this last week, command them, the rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous, and to be willing to share. Paul doesn't, the Bible doesn't in any place say the Christian response to wealth is to sell everything you have, become voluntarily poor. It's actually more radical than that. The call to Christians who follow Jesus is to radically, counterculturally embrace, listen to this, a voluntarily simpler life. Paul is not, the Bible is not against Christians being rich. Paul is, and the Bible is against Christians, listen carefully, living rich. And our culture says, hey, live right up to your means, man. 
actually live right above your means. In the kingdom, everybody, please pay attention. In the kingdom, we voluntarily live a simpler life. We voluntarily choose to live a notch or two or several notches where we could live so that we could be radically generous. That is the way of Jesus. I know this makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable too. Let me be very, very clear. Let me be very, very clear. There are people in our church who so live this, like they live a voluntary, simpler life so they could be radically generous. It humbles me. It floors me. And every time I preach on this, I literally feel like I need to just pause for a moment and go, and I'm not talking to you because you get it. And you are an enduring blessing to our church. So thank you. Our church is phenomenally gifted with some folks who do this. But you know what our church also is? The vast majority of our church lives just like the rest of the culture. Vast majority of our church, and by the way, let me be very clear. In our church, we don't talk about tithing because I don't think that's a biblical concept in this way. Tithing, I think, is a general start. But in our church, we talk about no, 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 no. How do we intentionally lower our lifestyle so that we could actually live sacrificially? That's what we talk about. We actually in our church talk about embracing a simpler lifestyle so that we could have more money to give. And, 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 and please give me like two minutes, okay? Our church, 60% of our church is singles, many of them in their 20s, 30s, who are right now making jobs, making jobs, in jobs making money, and establishing directly and directly priorities about how they're going to live their life financially. The reason why church family, I talk about this as passionately as I do is this. Because I need those of you in your 20s, 30s to get this. I need you to get this biblical principle. I need you to be a radical follower of Jesus. Who will be looked upon as being crazy by your peers. Because you say the way of Jesus is this. All of you might live right up to your means. But as the way of Jesus, I will choose to live several notches below where I could live. So I could be more radically generous. I am actually crazy enough to believe that I can challenge disciples of Jesus to live that way for the kingdom. I found this, uh, uh, this, this letter correspondence between uh, John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, and one of these 20-something young protégés. And this guy wrote to John Newton and said, hey, this whole generosity, like, what do I do? How, how did this work? And this is fascinating. You know what John Newton said? He writes this young man, he goes, I want you to divide everything in your life into three things, okay? Three categories. Necessities, conveniences, and luxuries. Necessities, conveniences, and luxuries. And then he says to this young man, figure out what your necessities are. Food, shelter, clothing, medical needs. What else? Necessities. Student loans, okay. (laughs) Student loans. (laughs) I don't think John Newton mentioned that to his student, by the way. His student loans. Can I just be real for a second? Don't you dare try and gauge what necessities are by yourself. Don't you dare. Do you? Do, do. <laughs> Let me see for myself. 
do you think your pastor, who's not very smart, by the way, do you think your pastor could sit by my lonesome and go, hmm, I think I know what my necessities are? Answer, heck no. Do you know what I need? I need a community of socioeconomically diverse people who in community will help me figure out what my necessities are. Are you hearing me? If you are surrounded by a group of people who make as much money as you or more than you, you have, you have a skewed perspective of what necessities are. This is the reason why, oh, by the way, I hope you love our church. Because our church will force you to be in community with people who are homeless, who have nothing, who will force you to redefine necessities. So John Newton says, for your necessities are, and then he says, figure out what your convenience and luxuries are. And then he says this, for every cent you spend on conveniences and luxuries, he says, spend another cent to the poor. In other words, he's saying, figure out what your disposable income is. And then he said, give half of it away. To which this young man, just like you, are like, uh-uh. <laughs> he didn't say uh-uh. He was like, come on, John. What about... I, want to be, I need to be safe. What about, what about my family? And then I love this. John Newton writes him. And as his letter, he grounds his entire letter in this passage from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the Lord, say the following with me. Lends to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. You know what John Newton says? He says, do you realize that when you give generously to charity, to ministry, to the poor, You're actually lending that money to who? To God. He's saying, the Bible says, you give generously. He says, God says, you're lending to me. You think you're giving, you're lending it to me. And God says, I'm good for that money. John Newton literally says, God is your savings account. God is your retirement account. If you don't trust that God could come through for you like that, how are you going to trust him for your salvation? Let, let me, I better preach. Let me just say this. And I, look, I've said this before, and this is my own. I'm only 46, 20-some years in ministry, so I don't have 80 years of experience. I have, ever, net, I have never yet seen anybody who became poor or got into a financial mess because they were radically generous. Never. Some of it is because these people also live a simpler life. But I have seen many, many people who decided, I can't trust God. I'm going to do this my way. Got into all kinds of financial mess and fell into this trap that Paul talks about, which could be devastating. Verse 8, verse 9. People who want to get rich... So he's talking to people who have it, also people who don't, who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Strong words there. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. One of the most used and misquoted verses in the Bible, right? Love of money. 
or uh, people go, money is the root of all. No, it doesn't say money is. This is what? Love of money. Literally, actually, the word is lust of money, an inordinate desire for money, an excessive concern about money, an excessive and inordinate concern and desire for wealth is the root of all kinds of evil. The Bible is constantly talking about, by the way, can I just say, how many of us know people whose families, marriages, lives were blown up because of money? We all have our stories. The Bible is constantly talking about the spiritual dangers of money, how love of money blinds you, how it distorts your reality. The only time Jesus said, watch out, was in regards to what? All kinds of greed. He never says this about sexual morality. He never says this about, he says, watch out for all kinds of greed. Money, love of it, distorts you. It blinds you. It makes you a fool. And Paul uses the word trap. Trap, trap was a literal word used for a bird trap. And the thing about this bird trap was that it was hidden. You couldn't see it. And Paul uses that word trap with foolish desires. A fool in Hebrew literature is someone who thinks he knows when he doesn't. A fool is someone who says, they struggle with it, I don't. He says, love of money causes you to fall into a trap with foolish and harmful desires. How does love of money trap you? Give me like three minutes on this and then I need more almost done today. You're trapped if you're blinded to the difference between luxuries and necessities, but you don't think you are. Is there more uh, apropos, appropriate, is that word apropos? Is, that, is there more appropriate time than like now in American culture to talk about this? Between Thanksgiving and Christmas? By the way, uh, I just read, Americans spent $5.5 billion in three days. Shattered records. billion dollars. And you know why, by the way? Do you know why? Do you know why? It's the convenience of technology. If people actually had their rear ends out into the cold and drive somewhere, they might not have spent it, but in the comfort of your own couch and on your computer, all it takes is a what? Click. But let's talk about us, not them. Let's talk about us. <laughs> I felt the wave of judgmentalness sweep through the sanctuary when I said 5.5 billion. Uh, some of y'all confess, like, we contributed to some of that 5.5 billion. Yes, raise your hands. No, 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 don't raise your hands, okay? Because we will judge you. <laughs> and you will judge us. How does this happen? How does this happen? How do you and I, how do you and I come to actually confuse the difference between necessity and luxuries? How does this happen? Do you think happens like just overnight? No, here's how it happens. It's the word desires that Paul uses. Foolish and harmful desires. The word desires, check this out, has the connotation of addiction. Addiction. Intentionally, Paul uses a word that has a connotation of addiction. And addictive drives has something called the tolerance effect. Do you know what the tolerance effect is? Tolerance effect is if you're on drugs, after a while, get a high, but your body gets used to the high tolerance effect. 
And after a while, you need more and more stimulus just to get that high tolerance effect. And Paul says, there are some of us who have fallen into this trap. How? Here's how it happens. You start make some money and you start be able to buy things that you didn't before and do things you couldn't do before. You know what the definition of those things are? Those are luxuries. Do you know why? Because you were able to do fine without them. The very definition of luxury is I did fine for 10 years without it. Take it or leave it. But here's what happens. Tolerance effect. You get used to it. I get used to it. And what used to be a necessity has now become what? A luxury. And we go, I can't live without it. And of course it doesn't help that you and I will spend our Christmas holidays with people that are making just as much money, if not more. And we, of course, judge them and go, I'm not like you. I'm not like you. Look at the size of that ring. Look at the size. We go, like we, <laughs> we do that. Do you know why? Tolerance effect. That kind of social conditioning traps you. And you literally, I literally go, I can't do, I just found this out. I, I literally Googled upgrade definition when and Webster's dictionary in the way we use upgrade as an upgrade to another version only came into our lectionary in 1980 before 1980 we didn't use the word upgrade in the way we use right now see my parents and I when I was growing up we had a Sony TV that was the size of a piano you know what I'm talking about <laughs> size of a piano I mean the sucker had a screen but it was like the size of a piano you know when we got a new TV when that sucker what broke down None of us sat around and go, you know, that size of a piano, it doesn't go on the wall. We need something that's going to go on. We need to what? Say it with me. Upgrade. How many of us are going to upgrade this year when we can give that money generously to someone who really needs it? You don't even think about it. I don't even think about it. We're not talking about people out. Have luxuries become necessities? Think, think, think. Have luxuries become necessities? How is this about contentment? Underneath all this is what? An inordinate desire. It's lust. Out of control desire. Church, family, before you go out of here, I need to say this to you. About what are you saying this morning? Please be honest. If I have that, if only I have that, I'll be finally okay. If I can just get that, if only I can just get that, my life would be complete. If I don't get that, then I'm dead. By the way, if you're saying, if I don't get that, then I'm dead, because you're, then you really are dead because that thing has you by the neck. It's got you by the jugular. Inordinate desire. Inordinate desire for What? And by the way, Paul is talking about, he's talking to rich people and poor people. He's talking, why? Because money can poison your life either by its absence or by its presence. Because if you're sitting here this morning and you envy people who have money, you resentful people who have money, you judge people who have money, or you're looking out at your peers and going, well, they're successful, what's wrong with me? And self-pity, self-pity is driving you, you're trapped. Not just 
So now that I've, uh, you know, spent the last 30 minutes convincing all of us that we stink. Because <laughs> we struggle with discontentment. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Do you just try harder? Let's go back to the Philippines passage, and then I'm done, okay? As you all know, I'm going to point you to who? Say it. I'm going to point you to Jesus. Because remember what I said? Underneath all sin is a failure to believe that everything I, I need, I already want. Possess in Christ. Three things that I'm done. First, learn to nurture contentment. Paul says, I have learned. By the way, is it encouraging to anybody that Paul says, I've learned to be content? I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. But that's also challenging because what? It's not something that's discovered. You're not going to stumble into it. Don't walk out of here going, God, make me more content. God's going to go work at it. (laughs) And no, you won't find contentment as a spiritual gift. I know it's in there somewhere. I know it's in there. Romans chapter 12. It's not a spiritual gift. It's learned. It's nurtured. You have to fight for it. You have to contend for it. Every day. Tom knows. I talk to that guy all the time. You have to contend and fight for it. Most of you walked in here this morning having no idea that you are being bombarded every day with messages that say, be discontent, be discontent. Be discontent. You and I just subconsciously watch TV, listen to music, walk around, swallowing this thing that is just fueling this thing that's raging inside of us already. Can I ask you something? Who are the people around you? There's some people you need to let go this year. And I mean that sincerely. Do you know why? Because they are fueling that rage inside your soul for discontentment. Why are you hanging around them? To which you go, I can't help it. They're my parents. I know. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I'm really sorry about that. I'm really sorry about that. I know you with some people that you just can't get away from. You're like, they're family, man. They're my parents. I know. I know. Trust me. Trust me. I know. I know. And when I say I know, I'm not just saying theoretically pastor like I know. I'm saying I know what it's like to be with family members and close dear ones who fuel that sense of discontentment. So let me say it a different way. Who do you need to be around more that will fuel contentment? Who are the people? What are the activities? What are the places you need to be that will nurture contentment? In you? Come on, seriously, seriously. Do some hard soul evaluation before you go into 2017. Think on this. Think this is lies at the root of so Secondly, not just nurture Feast on God. I intentionally chose that word, feast on God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 13, uh, 4, 4, 4, 13. From this point on, none of you will misuse this passage ever. None of you will miss. If you do, I'm going to come after you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Has nothing to do with sports. Stop it. <laughs> like tweet when you see an athlete with it like, oh, I can do all things. He's walking into a boxing ring like, shut. That's not what it's about. 
I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Colossians 1.16, listen, you and I have been created by him and for him. You and I have the capacity to feast on God. We have the capacity to have the deepest needs of our soul met. Is it amazing to anybody? But you and I have not even begun to plumb the depths of it. We're barely scratching the surface of it. What does it mean for you to know that there is someone who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart? To know that we are not even plumbing the depths of it. The promise of God is taste and see that the Lord is God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The things that will make you and my life miserable if we don't have them are the things that we put before God. What are you saying, am I saying this morning that's driving a discontentment that says, that is my hope, that is my security, that is my wealth, that is my affirmation, that is my approval. What is it? You have to see those things for what they are. Those things that you're after, they're after you. Those things that you're after, you're after. Wake up. It's after you. You feast on God. You and I know that we will make great sacrifices for that which is our highest value, right? And if God is our greatest good and our highest value, then should we not make whatever sacrifice is required to get Him? If God is ultimately the highest good, should He also not be our highest goal? If God is our ultimate good, should he not be our ultimate highest value? But here's the thing. You have to go all in. You want to be content? You have to go all in. You can't nibble around the edges of Christianity and think that you'll find contentment in him in which you can do all things. You have to go all in. Most of us want to be vaccinated with Jesus. Just a little bit enough of him so I don't catch the real thing. You have to go all in. And lastly, preach the gospel to yourself daily. We're great at listening to our hearts. We're terrible at talking to our hearts. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Your, your heart is talking to you all the time. All the time. Our words significant. All the time. And we just walk around going, you, 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 you. Preach the gospel to your heart. When you're in need, preach to your heart to say, I have all that I need. He took everything that I deserved, and I get everything he deserved. I have wealth beyond this world. I am an heir of the Lord of the universe, and one day I'm going to rule and reign with him. I am his beloved. I am his son. I am his daughter. 
And when you have plenty, especially when you have plenty, preach the gospel to yourself even more. What do I mean? Preach the gospel to yourself and say, at this point I have this relationship. At this point I have this money. At this point I have this success. But God, at the end of the day, I could take it or leave it. You're what I need. You're my significance. You're my wealth. You're my identity. You're my worth. Especially when you have plenty right now. Preach the gospel to yourself and say, that is not my life. He is my life. We're about to enter a Christmas season where you will be bombarded and brainwashed to find discontentment and to satisfy it by spending and spending and spending. Feast on him. Feast on him. Let's pray. I've asked CC and the worship team to help us close with this hymn. I know there are times when we just sing words because it's just words on a screen. But man, I've prayed this entire week that this would be your prayer and that this would be my prayer. Can I just read Paul's words once again and you just pray these words in your heart before we sing this hymn? I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. But friends, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. See, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. But I tell you, I have learned the secret of being content any and every situation for I can do all this through him 